I would venture to say that most of us, if not all of us, are going through life holding on to something painful. It could be overcoming being bullied as a kid, surviving a violent, intimate relationship as an adult, or witnessing violence day in and day out as a child. We can all learn from each other's experiences, but can we learn from someone who is serving life in prison for murdering their closest friend? I think you'd be surprised, as we certainly have been. I'm Sonny Schwartz. I've been working in criminal justice for over 40 years as a law student, lawyer, and always an activist. I've developed dozens of programs for incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people. I'm an author, wife, mother, and dog mom, rabbit baseball fan, and now a podcast host. This is the Life Sentence podcast from inside the walls of Central California Women's Facility near Chowchilla, California, the largest women's prison in the world. This place is massive. It's about a 20-minute dusty walk from the checkpoint to where we record the podcast. We walk into a large metal structure about the size of a grocery store. It's noisy. The fluorescent lights above are buzzing. On one side of the building, inmates are constructing dentures. And on the other side of the building, they make lenses for prescription glasses. I worked with men most of my career who did horrible, horrible things to people, mostly women and some children. And yet, throughout my career, I had a deep belief that they can change, that the vast majority of violence is learned and it could be unlearned. And yet, hearing some of the stories of the women that we're going to talk to, my heart closed down. The doors fly open. Women start to trickle into the room. They brought a borrowed folding table and metal chairs. How you doing? You all right? This is our studio. The women gather in a half a circle off to the side. Some are incarcerated for violent crimes and others are serving life without the possibility of parole for murder. All right, ready? Okay. And everything I'm about to say, and, and I'm talking to you guys, the women back there too, I'm struggling. I've read some of your cases. I'm not proud about what, what I'm about to say, but I'm going to keep it real. So I comb through all their stories, the court records, the news coverage. I went way down a rabbit hole. I couldn't believe the women sitting in front of me were capable of the gruesome details that I read about. Stabbings, gun violence, lethal drugs, and stalking. My head was spinning. Some of the crimes that, and I can't remember who's who and what's what, to be honest, but some of the description of the crimes just broke my frickin' heart. I was like, how, how, tell me, help me understand. This was my first day on the job as a podcast host. I wasn't sure if I was making it up, being paranoid. 
I was really having a hard time reading the room. Remember when I was talking about working with incarcerated men? Painfully, I realized I was judging the women far more intensely than I judged the men. I thought I came with an open heart, but I was blind to my own biases and prejudice. So the struggle for keeping my heart open continues, and I ask you to join me in this exploration and journey of inhumanity to humanity. Sitting next to me was Velda Dobson Davis, a retired chief deputy warden of the California Department of Corrections, and Velda has counseled many of the women at the table. She worked in male and female prisons and has committed herself in retirement to continue to help this population. She's a self-proclaimed servaholic. What that means is that this woman has more energy than all of us put together. Did I mention she has 26 grandchildren? After all these years, the last thing she is is cynical. She redefines the word advocacy. So we're going to be hearing from her a lot throughout the series as a co-host and a trusted advisor, underscore trusted. Is it easier to accept men's crimes and behavior based on the inferior, superior societal norms? I mean, I, I struggle with that too. Yeah, women are demonized. Yes, exactly. When they commit the same crime. It's the image we have of what a woman should be where we have the expectations of how they're to carry themselves and how they're to behave and um, where men have no limits on them, no expectations on them. And you look and you judge as a woman, you do judge. You say, I didn't do that. I mean, you know, because we have a standard, an expectation that we're expecting women to measure up to. We don't hold men to that same standard. We're offering excuses, a million of them, for male, but for females, we have a different standard. And I had to come to terms with my own reality of my thoughts regarding what a woman could tolerate, could take before they exploded. That is what we have to pay attention to when we do this work, that you have to set your standard aside and then get about the business of helping them heal. Where were you? What happened to you? How did you get to the place where you resorted to doing that? that that's my assignment. It's important that, that people who are listening know, I don't have any credentials that would justify my thoughts relative to uh, the behavior of, of persons, female or male, in prison. But I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. I'm 67 years old. So I consider myself to be a subject matter expert. You know, this monster that we're seeing didn't just wake up one day, wasn't born like that. So what happened that created this snowball effect that I see today uh, in this prison. In your own journey, what expectations have you put on others? If you identify as a woman, what standards do you hold yourself to and what standards do you hold other women to? Think about that for a second. Are there people in your life that you've given a pass to while others were easier to condemn? I want to introduce you to Stephanie. Stephanie has bravely decided to come to the table and tell her story. 
She is serving life without parole and currently 13 years into her sentence for murdering someone she once called her closest friend. I only tell you about her crime because I want you to hear how a person's life can snowball so out of control. For Stephanie, it started when she was just a little girl. It was just normal for us to have holes in the walls. Oh, so it's um, my father, my mother, my brother, and my twin sister. We pretty much bounced around um, for a majority of my um, life up until the age of 13. There was violence um, everywhere we went. They were um, addicted um, to meth as well. Um, <sighs> Sorry, I got to slow down. Um, it's okay. So by the age of 13, I was already addicted. Um, my mom to meth. So I was introduced to drugs um, through my mother. Do you remember the first time you, you took meth? The very first time? I think I was uh, 12. And I ended up being eventually just selling drugs with my mom just because I wanted to be with her and spend time with her. But as her addiction progressed, that's when those um, nurturing things disappeared. Yeah. And that's when I started to cling on to her the most and just try to be with her, whether that meant I had to help her sell drugs, you know, dry out meth. Um, she'd come out, she'd cook her meth, and I would get my bags. I'd make sure, okay, let me put these away so that way I have a way to take care of myself when mom goes back to jail. At 15 years old, Stephanie's father took off, left, vanished, abandoned them all. And her mother, she was sent to prison again. This time, it was a much longer sentence. So she moved in with her aunt. Her aunt only let Stephanie stay if she supplied her with meth. My aunt, she's already telling me, you know, when I'm out of drugs, I can't stay there anymore. Like I said, there's so much to explain in such a short amount of time. Um, without having a parent around yeah. and I didn't have my sister, I just clung to the first man that I thought would, um, might be able to give me guidance, the man that seemed like he would be able to take care of me. I'm young, I'm 15, and I just go off the first dude that, you know, um, I know I wouldn't have a mom, so I got to have somebody. So I basically hold up with this man for the next couple of years until my mom gets out of prison. It becomes this cycle all over again. As soon as my mom gets, gets out of prison, I'm thinking, okay, I'm saved. I get my mom back. We're yeah. going to have a good relationship. This is going to be all different. Yeah. I had gotten pregnant. Um, so by the time she gets with out of prison. With this man? Yes. Um, so but he, he abused you? He abused me. But the abuse to me, didn't, it didn't really matter to me. You know, I was like, well, as long as I have someone to help me make these decisions every day, because I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know where to go. Um, I didn't know education was a possibility. I didn't know that there would be shelters there um, anywhere. I didn't know how to ask. Well, how would you know at 16? Right. You know, and another question I have is, you know, um, do you look back? Was there anyone ever that tried to intervene in your life? So if you're wondering who just chimed in, that's Leslie Grisanti. She's the executive producer of this series. Do you, re like, maybe somebody did, but you don't remember it, but, like, did you do you recall anybody keeping an eye on you? Um, gosh, I wish I could say I had, like, a teacher or a mentor or somebody. Yeah, no. Um, my family wasn't into church. No one had sat down to say, hey, like, you matter. Like, you're, even though you're not getting the love that you need, you are loved. Um, so these little things, these seeds that could have been planted in me that's saying, like, um, that I could do something with my life, 
um, or that I could even work and get a work permit by the age of 15. That was not there. I didn't even know I could apply for a job. No. I just knew that, okay, when I'm 18, I'll be an adult. And that was it. I could say my most uh, prominent like um, memory would be me walking through the park at night. Um, we're homeless. We have nowhere to go. Um, and the only time I ever remember receiving help is um, I go to, um, I think it was a, it was some kind of welfare office. I need help, like like money or something where I could just find a room for tonight. Um, and she helped. So they write me a check. And I'm so when I'm walking through this park and I get to this apartment building and I just say, hey, I have like a $200 check. Will you help me? Can I stay in your room for a couple of days? And um, that's probably the most, the time that one woman really said, okay, well, I don't know you, but I'll help you. Um, oh. And you had your baby with you. At- I had my baby with How me. How old was She's in her um, car seat. Um, so she was only... I think she was only like six months. Just having to just worry about how to get the baby formula, how to how to get the baby um, diapers. You know, what I mean, 16. like every day worrying about such a thing and um, mm-hmm. having to leave the baby in the same diaper for all night. You know, what I mean, and her experiencing rashes and things of that nature. Um, it's you know, and not worrying about me. I don't know how I ate. I only remember eating. I had this one memory. You know, when it did, someone actually was like kind enough to say, okay, I'll help you. Um, and she just let me sleep in her um, room for like probably a couple of weeks. Did the guy come with you too? He did. He did. He wasn't going to let me go. Um, he, it became a thing. Um, if, if I had any, if there was any intention of me leaving that he would threaten to take the baby. Um, if I wouldn't do something that um, I, that he asked me to do, he would start pinching the baby's feet. I wanted to hold on to my baby's life, but for me, that's all I had in life. There was not, I didn't have anything else going for me. So um, it was uh, just for me to stay with him meant, meant safety for me and the baby, yeah. even though we didn't have shelter, even though we didn't have consistent food. At that time, you felt that was safety. Yeah. I, was he the father of your? He was the father of the okay. child, yeah, of both my children. So um, uh, eventually when my mom did get out, out of prison, um, she was sober. And I was thinking, oh, saving grace, you know, here's mom, sober. She gets an apartment, she takes me in. And here's this man here, still here. And that home, instead of my mom and dad, it's me and him. He's punching holes in the wall. He's cutting himself saying, I'm going to kill myself if you leave me. I can't go have anywhere. To, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm going to, I'm going to take your babies. Like, and he's not even referring to them as, you know, his kids, right? So it's just um, this possessive thing. The baby. Yeah. Um, and I ended up having another baby. I had just turned 18 um, when I had my second child. Um, and I'm still, you know, the same kid that I was when I was 15 when mom left, you know. I was just learning how to survive the whole time she was gone. I'm just waiting for her to get out of prison. So she gets out of prison. She's sober, you said. She's sober. And um, you're living with? I'm this. living with her. Um, at that time, I'm collecting money from the state, you know, welfare, because um, he won't work. I have to stay home, take care of um, children. Stephanie's search for stability was a roller coaster, to say the least. She went to jail at 19. She lost custody of her two girls. She worked hard to get them back, but eventually she relapsed. That's when I had um, made the decision to give my children um, to my in-laws because I knew they would take better care of them. Let me chime in. There's a story behind every one of these women that you meet inside this prison. 
they all have a genuine path that led them here. And it, it believe it or not, um, most of it began with them being victimized. And most of it happened at very young, vulnerable years when they could not, where they didn't ha- had not developed coping skills, where they had no one running to their rescue, when they were left unattended. Um, you know, I can have a good conversation with them because I'm a victim of that. I got pregnant very early, um, and and that was traumatizing for me. I married an abusive man, and I'm 15 going on 16, and that was traumatizing for me, and I suffered through that. And then once I was able to get out, it was like everybody was like, but you're a failure. And so now I'm on a mission to prove them wrong. My decision-making was just different, Um, not because I'm anyone special, I think it has to do with there was just some level of support that I received that they did not get, um, particularly um, as a as a child, a, a victim of abuse as a little girl. Ninety nine point nine percent of them experience something horrible, and that horrible sits inside you, and at some point it will emerge. And when it emerges, and then you add to that substance abuse, you add to that victimization, you add to that trauma, new trauma, you know, big girl trauma. I'm in junior high. You, now I'm a, a high school. Now I'm in college. Now I'm working, whatever it is. And then this will emerge. And then I'm sitting there looking at you in court like, what, the, what happened? Mm-hmm. I mean, you live in the same life I did, mm-hmm. afforded the same things I was. But what you just said, Velda, is... It begs the question, I think, for a lot of people is that, so why is it that it didn't happen to you? Why is that? I mean, there's no justifying hurting someone on one hand. On the other hand, if we're really going to dig deep into try to interrupt this hideous intergenerational cycle of violence and other crimes, we got to look at it, like you said. So why is that? I always had my mother there that was like my rock and for a lot of um for a lot of the women that I work with they they didn't have that parental support from their mom and so i think that you add those little tiny little steps that kind of guided me to the right instead of to the left but it also empowers me to talk to them because really i just made a different decision than they did one good decision one one sliver of not doing what my mind told me to do right then, or I'd be right here with them. Let's take another moment. Has there ever been a time in your own life where you could have made the wrong term, a bad decision? Who was it, or what was it, that pushed you in a better direction? I think that the inability to just take care of myself and deal with life itself and what that entailed, I wasn't prepared for that. I think the age of like 21, grandma came back in my life and she was like, I see that you held a job. At that point, I had for a long time, I gave up until I moved in with my grandmother. And we, um, she threw me the bone, as you could say. Can you imagine trying to get your life together in that environment? Stephanie tried to keep pushing. She enrolled in school, even in the throes of her addiction. And for me, you know, using once in a while, to me, that still meant that I was kind of sober. I was living yeah. this life because being chemically dependent and not being able to get up in the morning versus just using, like, on the weekend. like And, and have and, function. Right. I constantly minimized my use. 
I'm a felon. How I thought I was going to get placed in this job. They're not placing me. Um, I'm using um, meth. I'm drinking whenever I can every day. I'm scrapping, like when I say scrapping for coins to get this one tall can every day, that was what I was doing. Um, a, a, a what can? A tall can. Drink. For me, that was enough because then I'm drunk and I'm just okay. I'm able oh, okay. to not deal with my stress. Um, so that was me um, coping every day. So I'm picking the girls up on the weekends and they're coming over. Okay. Um, and here I am, but I'm working part-time jobs, just a graduated um, medical assisting vocation, working for free. Um, now I don't have enough money. Part-time job, Dollar Tree, part-time job at Sonic Burger. No money, have to take the kids every weekend. So I'm unable to meet these needs in my life, right? Yeah. So the stress just like won't leave me. And I felt in my life at that time, I'm doing everything that I can. There's nothing else that I could do. Like, um, I'm, I'm never going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have suicidal um, ideation. I try to commit suicide a couple times. Um, and it's... I, how, did, how did you stop how did from I killing stop? yourself? Um, I was, I was, well, I remember, so my, um, first suicide attempt, I, um, I cut myself, um, and I pass out and I remember waking up and there's like blood everywhere and I'm just mad that I'm alive. I'm just mad. Yeah. Um, cause I don't know how I'm going to make it through tomorrow. I have all this pressure from my family, me needing to take my children when I need to, but I have to work on the weekends and working, working, working yeah. for... You know, no money. Can I say something? Yeah. That's Michelle. Michelle's in her 18th year of serving life without the possibility of parole. There's a different kind of grief that comes when you don't have your children with you. Like every day you you feel that torn part in your heart, not just for being a failure, but letting your children down and having that separation. You change inside. And it just, it, it creates such a confusion inside of you. You don't even feel like you just, you lost your entire being, your in, entire sense of belonging. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain when um, there's so much I felt like I needed to do that I was not able to do. And I was not able to hit the mark that a per- normal person of society would. It's kind of hard to have this conversation and not bring up um, my victim. And it's, because um, really she has no, she, She had nothing to do with anything that was going on in my life. No buts. Um, there was just a lot that I was going through and I wasn't able to handle. And um, I had, so once in a while I would see her. Um, She's a friend. She was my friend that I had known since I was 13. Yeah. So during the time um, I'm you know, working and I'm living with my grandma. Um, my mom's in prison again. Right. And all I could do is like, in the back of my mind, I'm blaming everybody. The reason why, um, things are happening. Why, why I'm unhappy. Um, I have this friend that comes to my life, tells me she loves me. Like I didn't have many friends. So I look forward to every time that I would be able to spend time with anybody. Um, meaning even negative peers, I feel like she was making me unhappy. She was, I felt like there were certain comments made. There was something that you said that when, um, it's one thing if a man tells us something, but if our friend tells us something mm. bad about us, then it's a whole nother thing, right? 
Um, so this is someone that I just a cherished. woman friend, right? A woman friend. Um, so um, I just couldn't forget about this stuff, and I'm just like harboring this hardcore resentment, and I'm blaming her for the reason why I'm so unhappy. Like when I go from a night that we hang out or a couple days we hang out and I go back to my normal life and I just am so unhappy. Um, so I'm just starting to blame it on people that I feel like are making me unhappy. It's like that emotional um, reasoning, right? I'm just, they're the reasons I'm feeling this way. So, she, you know, she's the reason why I'm feeling this so way. you're blaming your friend. Yeah, I'm blaming. You're not blaming your dad no. or the boyfriend or no. the other people who are abusing you. No. Um, and what I didn't know was that all this hurt, um, that I had, I've been in denial using drinking every day, right? So I'm not dealing with, I'm not really not dealing with this stuff. And so when my hurt does come up, when someone says something bad to me, that's when all the emotional things become to like an explosive mm -hmm. point. I didn't really recognize that hurt as something that had previously already happened years ago. Um, so your friend says something to you that you just hung on to. Is that what you're... It was more like... It was an image thing, right? You're ugly or you're... She said that. Or like, you know, why are your hands like man hands? Like these stupid little comments that don't mean anything, but like it tells me in my mind, like, yeah. like, oh, I don't love you. I'm living day to day, just trying to survive at this point, right? And I'm still using. Um, I become obsessive with these things, of these things that people are telling me. Yeah. I have my ex coming in out of my life and tell me, you're like, you're never going to be normal. Like, why are you even working? Don't even try. Like, you're not going to be able to be what yeah. other people um, expect you to be. And so on the night of my birthday is when my crime happened. Um, we were using drugs. We were drinking all night. Um, and hurtful things were said. And... Um, I could say, um, I had already been harboring resentment against her for saying hurtful things to me before. So on that night, it wasn't, for me, I wanted her to pay. Like it was for me, I just, now you're hurting me. It's my birthday. You're hurting me. And now I want you to hurt. And that's the only thing that mattered to me. So your friend, I mean... How I'm could, feeling this too. Is like, correct me if I'm wrong. It was like, it felt like that was the ultimate betrayal. I really felt like if if my hurt, if you're hurting me and my hurt would go away, um, and you were gone, then my all my all of my problems would be solved. I had this uh, major conflict going on in my mind that um, I tried to kill myself. I did everything I could do. I'm doing everything I could do. You, you're my problem. Um, and for some reason, that's where it's a very, very distorted thinking. It was sick. It was addictive. It was, there's nothing in there that was even rational. So a long uh, time ago, before my mom went, and, you know, to prison for her last time, um, she was selling drugs. I was in my addiction. Um, I was homeless and I needed a car. I don't remember what was going on in my life at that time. Obviously, I didn't have a car, but I remember this day. Um, and she had, um, sold this car to this man for, um, in exchange for dope, um, different dope or more dope, whatever it was. I felt like she was choosing, um, her dope, her whatever over me. Here comes my rejection. Here comes my abandonment. Here comes my betrayal from my mother. Um, and so that day I remember, um, 
raging out on her. And I went and got a knife and I chased her around. And um, I could have hurt her that day, right? Um, so that's what that reminds me of the, the same night that when I was um, with my victim. So it's these all these emotions yeah. that I had just not yeah. dealt with for a very long time. Um, not at all. Yeah, at all. I was going to say, the not moment you were born. Right. Sounded like. Yeah. From the moment she was born, over and over and over again, the people she loved the most hurt her. Her mother, her father, her boyfriend. So much incredible pain. It wasn't until she came to prison and a mentor asked her a very simple question that set her healing in motion. She asked me, at the night when you were hurting your friend, is it possible that you were just trying to hurt everyone else that hurt you? And that's basically when everything had changed, you know? So I think that it wasn't what your friend said to you, right? Um, she could say something hurtful to me, but it wasn't, you know, that's not why I reacted the way I reacted. Um, and so, um, and I, you know, as soon as I remember, oh, I don't know if I want to go into details. In the moment when you're, uh, when I'm, when I was that angry in that moment, I remember thinking, oh, fuck, what am I doing? Um, at that time, you. At that time, in the moment. And then tell myself, huh, I can't, like, what am I going to do now? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, that's not even the right words to put it, but you know, I'm just, there's this moment. And you can't go backwards. You know, I can't even say how many, what we used that night. It was just, you know, and so I, um, had I not been on drugs, had it happened, I don't know. Had it, you know, had this not happened that night, you know, it's kind of, all those things are just, it's, I don't know, is that part of the, I don't even know if that's part of the conversation, right? So it's, um, yeah, it's not, it's, there's nothing that you can, um, that I can say or do, you know, and like this month is her birthday. And so doing this podcast, I'm just like, it goes out there. Someone could hear it, right? Um, the family could hear it. Is it going to help? But I know, um, I know that things just don't happen, you know, um, like overnight, like me, my decision to, do that to her in that moment did not it it's not something that just happens it's a combination it's a combination of everything of not having to do with my own crap my own um my own beliefs my own emotions my own addiction my own all these factors um come into play it's not just one thing it's an accumulation and she happened to be the person that could take it out on at that time um because i was just angry when you said, well, how you're trying to wrap your mind around how someone could, um, you said that you read our stuff and yeah, how can someone do that to their friend? Yeah. You know, um, I convinced myself, you know, I don't have no friends. So to me, in my mind, my kids didn't really matter to me either. You know, like, um, it's kind of, so she, it's a you just, bold, it's a harsh statement to say, but it's, it's a, a narrow mindedness, right? Of yeah. just having to get by day by day and um, not 
I didn't have any glimpse of what the future would look like. I always saw myself of a person that wasn't able to take care of my kids, wasn't able to pay the bills, wasn't able to, you know, get a job like other people can. You know, I gagged myself before, popped my eyeballs out of my socket, trying to kill myself. Like, it's not, it's, and it, that's just saying, like, I'm so desperate, you know, but like, was I really? Because, you know, um, I had, you know, am I really desperate to leave or do I just want help and not saying it? The daily yeah. stuff that I didn't want to deal with. Um, and really, it was merely my own mind, right? Um, that makes any sense. That anger and that rage, it's a secondary emotion. What she had, what she felt, abandonment, rejection, judgment, all those things. Yes. Top, she just didn't know how to deal with That's that, right. that piece. And it came out as anger. It came out as rage. Yes. And, and then finally there's someone that I can take it. All that I've collected, all this pain and hurt I've collected. And now I'm going to relieve myself. The hurt that now. won't quit. I so understand rage. I so understand rage. I don't, again, I don't walk in your shoes, but I understand rage, and I think virtually every human being understands rage. What about you? Can you relate? Were you the one enraged? Or have you experienced rage from someone else? It took years of being incarcerated, just even me, to come to accept, like, what I've done. So there's educational piece that we do in one of our groups. And it's all these things that I'm feeling, the abandonment, the rejection, um, just the, I have a grief um, thing going on. It's important to look at each one of the things that I'm feeling, recognize it, not, don't stuff it down. Take a look at it. Why am I feeling this way? How can I deal with it? What can I do to lower that stress level? Right. And so it's a, it's a daily thing. And I've been in recovery for, I always said eight, but I've, apparently I've been saying eight for the last couple of years. It's more than that. Um, you know, time flies in here. But um, so it's important that I do that for myself, but not for myself, for everyone around me. Um, and it's like the biggest thing that I can do to honor anybody that I hurt, right? Um, to look at myself. Because I always ask, um, if someone did this to my child, right? Um how would I want them to live? I could say that they they earned the punishment. I could say that they need, you know, that they deserve to be in prison for the rest of their lives. But what exactly, how would I want that person to live? Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's in prison or out of prison. If I know that, that that person, let's just say, has sexually abused my child and he is in prison and he's still that person that sexually abuses and he's still, and he, or he gets out and he's still sexually abusive, like, that's not how I would want my child to be honored, right? Um, if someone takes my child's life, right? And that person's in prison and they're still in that violent behavior and they're still hurting people. I think that would be the ultimate thing um, that would, that would, that. Like a betrayal? Yeah. Like insult on top of the yeah. injury. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's how I um, choose to live um, in a place that would honor that, be a better person, right? Look at myself intently, um, examine these things, work on those things, um, put in effort, right? Um, but also it encompasses just other people because um, I've never done that before, right? So just taking moments just to care or, you know, and invest in others.
what is it that you, you feel like you can do regardless of whether you, you end up getting out of here or not? It's about how I choose to live. Um, if I'm living the same way I lived before, it's, you know, like, what am, I, what am I saying to her family? And I never looked at this stuff for like the first few years I came in here. I was just doing my time. What, what changed? Stephanie told us it's easy for anyone entering behind the walls in prison to fall right back into the same cycles they did on the outside. Whatever landed you here can be found here. Gangs, violence, codependent relationships, abusive relationships, even drugs. Felda Dobson Davis was uh, the warden. That was my first year. I was just drinking. I was smoking pot. I was just, you know. Inside. Inside. Yeah. I was dealing with, I, that's how I dealt with my emotions still. Same thing. Yeah. When something came up, even when I was in county, I was in county for two years before that. And all I did was brew hooch just yeah. so I could drink. Yeah. So that way I didn't have to deal with anything. Yeah, that's that homemade brew. Mind. That's nasty. It was a day that I drank one cup. It was one cup of alcohol. I said something. Um that I wouldn't normally say had I been sober. Um, Because usually I'm really, you know, more quiet and just, you know, not going to say anything to you. But I had been drinking, so I'd said something, and I had gotten my little courage through my drink. Um, And it involved an officer, and something bad happened that day. Um, It was a very um, bad fight. It involved razor blades, like five Mm. people, me. Um, And so I'm fighting, and I'm fighting. Stephanie was moved to ADSEG also known as administrative segregation or another term for solitary confinement. She says she hit rock bottom. Everyone's not doing the work that they're doing. And so behind them are these people that have the same issues. And if you're not putting in the work and realizing, you know, the problem you have, then you cause harm. And if you don't know you're codependent and you don't know that you're needy and you don't know that these issues are just kind of sitting there and that you're dysfunctional and you're not addressing those issues, then you will repeat your history with somebody else and you'll blame them and then you'll find someone else. And it just, it's just... uh, As the saying goes, you take yourself with you wherever you go. Everywhere you go. I'm there for like a month, um, just sobering up and just sitting there. I realized that... um, it doesn't matter um, how much you drink. It's just doing it, right? So uh, it didn't dawn on me exactly in that moment. But, like, after I get out, um, I go back to this and I realize, oh, my gosh, like, that one drink made that much difference um, for me to just say something that turned into this big chaotic event. So I exercised my ability to say no after that point, um, realizing that was the problem. I was a problem. So I made sure I took my self-help groups, um, that I would um, do my part in whatever event that I was um, helping um, with. So, I mean, the social aspect of it, I think, was the biggest part because I had never had these healthy relationships with people. I would join a committee, help out, coordinate an event, and all of a sudden I would be chairperson. I'd run the event, right? And then all of a sudden I'd start my own committee. I'd do that, and now I'd coordinate different events for different places. Yeah. I never... Um, it's everything's always been surrounded by addiction, yeah. partying, things of that nature. Are you in touch with the victim's family at all? No. Um, sometimes I'll have my mom like look up to see if there's any comments um, that they make, only because not for 
not out of curiosity, but to know that when um, I put in my, um, for myself effort, like for my self-improvement, taking self-help groups, whatever I'm doing in my life, um, I want to make sure that I honor that. Like if there was a comp that they said, I want to make sure that I take that to heart. How does it feel talking about all this? I'm sure it's not just one emotion. No. Um, for me, bringing this up, knowing that they could be hearing it or somebody else could be hearing it, it's, um, I'm afraid that it, it will just bring stuff up that maybe everyone deals with stuff in different ways. It's not for me to assume that um, if I say something that you're going to deal with it, okay. You know what I mean? So it's kind of, um, I don't want to be the reason why someone else might be doing like self-harm, um, following back into it, their addiction, um, taking a pill that they don't need to take. Um, that family only received... Um, $660 for counseling. Hmm. So when I think about these things, um, you can't even put a price on it, right? But when you hear something like that, that just yeah. even worse. It makes it worse. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, and so um, I can't assume that they, that they are ready to hear anything, right? Because this month is her birthday month and I already know, like, so... They go to her grave and they place this, like, they'll buy a new ferry every year and they'll place it next to her grave. And so when you go there, it's just a bunch of fairies and mushrooms and things that she would have liked. And so I, um, it's kind of hard to. Does that, like, kind of show you the impact? Like, mm -hmm. these people need help. Right. They probably oh, yeah. needed help at the time. No you one know. was able to give it to them. And if it, they did, if it was provided by, like, county services or victim services, it wasn't enough. No. There's no way you could say that someone that lost their child. If I lost my child, the victim service, $1,660, like, um, that's just a sad situation, right? And so, oh my God, yes. um, now, if, if they need more than that, how else are they going to get the help, right? So how people, I know that in my past, how I dealt with it was to not want to deal with it, right? Right. Take drugs. Right. Um, so that's why I just say this is a dangerous thing. I hear you. Right. Um, that's that ripple effect. That yeah. Causing well, a pain. Like, what Valda talks about, you know, there's people walking around that are traumatized, that are in pain, that could be next in line to end up in here. You know, now I, I get what she's talking about. Right now as we sit and talk, there's still children out there that are feeling lost and abandoned and without. And, you know, there, there's someone listening that knows that child. You see them out your window and you watch them at the bus stop. or You see them walking behind your kid's group and they're by themselves. But somebody needs to check out these children and find them and speak to them and say something to them. You know, it's, it's not just the teachers. We neighbors, we see them. Yeah. And, and that's the ones we worry about that no one is reaching out. No one is paying attention. They they had no voice, no voice. And then that straw comes and it breaks the camel's back. It's the cumulative effect the of cumulative. it. Did I see myself ever doing that to somebody? No. And did at that time, I did, did I think about the consequences? No. So let's just stay together here. 
Let's take a deep breath. Okay? I really support you to give yourself relief. Give yourself mercy, compassion for yourself, for your loved ones, for those you've hurt. So let's just take a minute. I so support you to continue to resolve, to stop hurting yourself, intentionally or unintentionally, to stop hurting any other human being, to give yourself relief, to continue to strive to be the authentic human beings that you are in the most healthy, safe, restorative ways that you can. You know, Michelle, you asked a question earlier when we were getting down about some hard feelings of the words that I chose to use yesterday. And I think you asked something like, do you put yourself in the shoes of those who offended or the victim? You know, I really had to dig deep for this answer. I had to look myself in the mirror and humble myself and be honest. So, Michelle, I think I relate to both. But to tell you the truth, I mostly relate to those who offended. And again, I don't want to make a cheap analogy because we don't walk in each other's shoes. I don't pretend to go to experience the horror that you experienced and the other women experienced. But I do understand rage and I do understand profound shame as a child. Could it be me instead of you? Maybe. And there's more to explore about why it was you and not me or us. So I thank you. I want to thank you for coming here, but I also want to apologize because, well, I mean, so when you first came and you said I looked up your stuff and you looked hurt. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, so... I'm sorry. I am so sorry for you being so abused, both of you. You so didn't deserve that. I am so, so sorry. And um, I really thank you for the hard work that you're doing in honor of you, in honor of your victim. Some people who listened to this podcast before it was released, they wanted to hear all the gory, gruesome details of Stephanie's crime. We chose to leave it out. Like me, as I shared at the top of this podcast, I went down that rabbit hole and looked up all the details and did a lot of reflection as I shared. And I had to ask myself, why am I doing that? And I'd support anyone listening. Why do we want that? Why do we want the gory details? So we decided this is not what this podcast is about. This is a forum of against all odds, how people 
can and do heal and how hope is alive and well. We're not denying anything that's on record or what occurred. There's no justifying denying minimizing. If you want to know the details, you can Google it. I'm your host, Sonny Schwartz, and this is the Life Sentence Podcast. Here's what's coming up next time. So when I got out and I looked at the whole threshold of the door, just had blood. Oh, boy. I was just blood everywhere. This podcast is produced by Leslie Grisanti Creative, a Minnesota-based production company specializing in video, animation, and audio production. In-kind support comes from five key schools and programs, celebrating 20 years of providing traditionally underserved communities the opportunity to improve their lives through education, employment, recovery, family, and community. And special thanks to the California Department of Corrections and the women and staff at CCWF, Warden Anissa De La Cruz, Lieutenant Monique Williams, Chelsea White, Chris Medina, and Courtney Waybright. The executive producer and creator of this podcast is Leslie Grisanti. Ms. Ellie Drews is our audio recordist and editor. Maria Barr is podcast producer. And our unstoppable and beautiful guest host, Ms. Velda Dobson-Davis.